You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. Welcome to episode 15 of Sparrows and Wildflowers. It's an absolute honor for me to present this conversation with Helen Davies. Helen has been diagnosed with terminal cancer, but that in no way overshadows the beautiful life that she lives for Christ and the incredible full story that she has to tell. Helen speaks really candidly about family issues, about having a personal revelatory experience of Jesus that has carried her through 58 years of Christianity, including many times of trial. She speaks about how her and her husband Graham ran a Christian bookshop for many years in New Zealand and how they ministered in countries across the world such as Kenya and Oman. Helen and Graham continue to live inspiring and wonderful lives in their home and church in Sydney. This episode is a little different in style and a little longer than my usual episode, but I'm confident that you're going to enjoy this inspiring episode just as much as I did. So here's my conversation with Helen Davies. I spent the first eight years of my life in a town called Gisborne, It's on the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand. Um, It's a place with lots of beaches and rivers that come down off all the mountains and flood like mad in the winter and the springtime. Um, Down over the plains to the sea that comes down. Um, It's a place where um, people gather the sea, the seafood, and the, the oh, the shellfish, ah. the shellfish, the power, and so on, and the rocks, and wow. it's a lovely part of the country. Yes, I only spent eight, my first eight years there, and then we moved to Tauranga in the middle of the sort of the more into the, into the further north in the North Island. Mm-hmm. Um, we spent three years there. Then we moved again. I uh, spent f- five years in Pateraru, which is a little town in the middle of the Waikato. Uh, again, in the North Island of New Zealand. It was a little farming area with a lot of dairy farming around us. Um, and then when I left home, I went to Auckland to do some training. So. It was where I lived. Wow, okay. Yes. Sounds like a beautiful place to grow up. Yes. Well, New Zealand is a lovely country in in respect of its land and its Mm. mountains and bush and everything else. It's beautiful. Yeah. And what was family life like for you growing up? Rather difficult for me. Um, My Mm. mother and I clashed really badly. Okay. Um. I've, I know now why that happened. I, I believe I understand why and yeah. would have, if I'd had a lot, if I'd had grown up wisdom as a child, I'd have handled <laughs> it differently. Yeah, <laughs> in hindsight, yeah. Um, but um, my father and my and two younger sisters, um, we, I, I always felt like the, the left out one, the, the 
the one who always seemed to get into too much trouble and mm. never seemed to get anything right. And I believe Mother was really just completely far too hard on me and expected yeah. far too much of me. And um, yeah, just we just didn't. No matter what I did, I always did the wrong thing. That must have been hard. Yes, but my grandparents were a big part of my life and they just lived along the end of the block from us so it was like about 200 meters away okay and i spent an awful lot of my time and that was happy time yeah at my grandparents i can remember my mother taking me outside the gate and my grandfather waiting up the end of the road so that they could both see me safely get from one place to the <sighs> other and two-year-old would toddle up the road to oh, how sweet. <laughs> to to visit my grandparents for the day and yeah um, my grandparents really made a huge difference in my life mm. I used to love going out in the garden and doing things with my grandfather and helping him sweep up the leaves and um, tidy up the garden and do things like that and that, that really made a balance in my life which was which was good. Yeah, bit of relief from that tension. Yes, yes. Yeah. And what are some of your other early memories? One of the memories was my grandmother used to teach me to, she taught me to knit. Um, and we used to take her to church on a Sunday. Mm. Um, we'd leave her there. We didn't go with her. Okay. We left her there and we went to the swings for the hour that church was on and then we'd come back and pick her up. Um, my grandfather was quite strong and um, well that when I was young and uh, he'd take us for walks and take us for rides in the car. In those days you didn't have to put children into seat seat belts and no. seat car, <laughs> car seats and all the rest of it that we have to today. And, yeah. Um, he was quite well off in comparison with most of the people around us. Most people didn't have a car when, when, I, was, when I was very young. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, it was fairly rare to have a car. Okay. What uh, year was that? I was born in 1944. Okay. Yes. So it wasn't a common thing to own a vehicle. No, they were just beginning to have vehicles, but okay. My father got one in about nineteen forty nine, I think it was. Uh huh. Or oh, maybe for nineteen fifty, might have been somewhere was somewhere around there. My father got a car, but right. Yeah. Was that exciting? Was that exciting? I can't remember it being exciting particularly because. Granda had a car, so I suppose I was used yeah. to... If Granda hadn't had a car, I might have been more exciting. Yeah. But it certainly made a difference with being able to be taken to school sometimes mm. instead of having to get there and be soaking wet when I got to school. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, I had to walk about a mile to school. Okay. And there was a bus but i still had to get pretty wet to get to the bus yeah so um it's uh it was quite a job getting getting children to school and you know we just used to get wet and hang up our wet clothes and wet mm. 
the gum we all wore gum boots to school. Yeah, rainy New Zealand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Now you mentioned dropping grandma off at the church. Is that yeah. one? Of, is that sort of your first memory or experience of religion or God, or are there some other memories that stand out? Uh, that probably would be. And Nana used to get me up into her bed. She had a big high bed. I don't know whether I was smaller or whether it really was a high bed. Yeah. She had a, a big family Bible, big heavy, thick family Bible, and. She'd read to me from it, and this, a lot of the Bible stories okay. were etched in my mind from when I was probably two or three. Okay. So, um, so that is really stuck with you. Yes, and I believe it was that was the that was the seed planting that had gone on in my life that really bore its fruit when I was twelve years old when I gave my heart to the Lord. So. Wow. Um, it was it was really very very clearly uh, stories you know, the stories were etched in my mind stories of Joseph and David and who who was in the who was in the lion's den Daniel, um, Daniel in the lion's yeah. den and, and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego and all those stories mm. all had lovely pictures to go with them and so each, each mm. one in the the New Testament um, Jesus being the shepherd and so many other lovely stories you know with with each had their own almost every second page had a beautiful picture mm. or drawing on it so beautiful yeah that was i'm sure that had a huge bearing on my future yeah and before we get to that um that moment you mentioned when you were 12. Yes. You also talked about going to school. How was your experience of school? It was It was a bit like home in a way. Okay. I'd been warned that if ever I got the strap at school, I'd get a double dose when I got home. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was the sort of scary thoughts I had of, you know, ever getting into trouble enough at school to get the strap, which I did do a few times. I talked too much. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but my parents were actually both school teachers too. Okay. So that may have had a bearing on that, I'm not sure. Did they teach you? Uh, later in, in high school, my father taught me. Oh, right. I didn't have a problem with him being my teacher. He just acted like he wasn't my father uh-huh. at school, and that was simple. We just just pretended we weren't father and daughter at school. Yeah. So uh, it was just the easy way to handle it. Mm. So, But I was quite bright at school. Um, I always did quite well. Until I got to standard three. Now, your years, I was about nine. And Mm -hmm. I got a teacher who took a dislike to me. Mm. And it made life really tricky. Uh, He did send me home. He strapped me and sent me home. And my mother took me back to school that time. She didn't whack me again. She took me back and told him he'd done the wrong thing and, made me go back to school, which totally surprised me. Yeah, wow. <laughs> that, that's significant. Is yes. that, do you think that's because he was so harsh or 
I think she realised he was very unfair. Okay. All I was doing was playing with a rubber silently. Oh, gosh. In, sing- <laughs> in a singing class, which we had with a radio. Yeah. So the radio was going, and I was singing, and I was playing with a rubber. Yeah. And tossing it up and down. He told me to stop doing it, and I didn't do what I was told. So wow. I was such a fidgety. If I couldn't talk, I had to play with a rubber. Yeah. A rubber. <laughs> wow. So mum was harsh, but she wasn't cruel like no, that. No, not, not. Yeah. I was totally taken by surprise yeah. when that happened. Okay. Uh, and she, she marched me straight back to school and told him off. <laughs> good on her. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, now I've lost where we were up to. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Um, school. Yeah. Um, I completed uh, the equivalent of year 11 here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did a course in office work at a TAFE. Um, when I finished my year of TAFE, I went and worked in an office um, and gradually um, over the years I worked in quite a few different places. Um, my favourite job was doing wages and bookkeeping. Okay. I could do typing and I could do shorthand, mm. but I wasn't very good at shorthand. I, I couldn't quite keep up. My brain and hand didn't work fast enough together. Mm. Um, but... Um, I did love doing wages and bookkeeping where things had to balance. The The joy of my life was when a, a, the wages balanced for the week without mm. having to change anything. <laughs> you know, I did feeling. it all and it balanced it. So, <laughs> yeah. Or, or the same if I had to do a ledger sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I did hand ledgers for small businesses and, and did it all and it all balanced. I hadn't made any mistakes with my figures or anything, so... So would you say you're a detailed person or you're maybe a numbers person? What do you think made uh, you enjoy that? I, I think it was the detail. I think it was the accu- being accurate, being mm. getting it right, I think. Yeah. Uh, something like that anyway. Yeah. I think maybe because I'd always been so wrong about so many things, maybe it, yeah. it made it met a need in my life of being right about something that... Yeah, you couldn't disprove me. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yes, yes. Now let's step back. Um, You mentioned when you were twelve that you sort of encountered Jesus for yourself. Couldn't you tell us about that? Yes, two men came from a Bible school. They'd done two years Bible training up in Auckland, Mm -hmm. and they were sent out to different towns around the countryside and to smaller towns particularly where um, in those days the churches didn't preach the gospel as we know it. Like they didn't they didn't give people an opportunity to give their lives to Christ. Right. That was not normally done in a church service. Okay. Um, and that would imply that would apply to the Anglican, Presbyterian and Methodist. Um, Baptists would do it, but mm. the those other main, more mainstream older churches didn't didn't give people the opportunity to give their lives to Christ in the same way. And I had never actually heard an altar call mm. until this time. Mm-hmm. But I'd been in church and I'd been going to church and going to Sunday school from the age of seven. 
I so you originally you'd just drop off grandma, but then you and the family. Sorry, yes, there's going. a little gap there in, in my story. Mm. Yes, they, one day mother and dad decided that we were all going to church and Sunday school, and then I was made to do Sunday school exams. <laughs> exams. Made to do them. I had to do them. There was mm. no getting out of them. <laughs> And again, I had all those lovely stories and I had to learn passages of the Bible off by heart. And mm. um, I didn't see at the time what a blessing that was going to be for, me, for my future. Mm. But um, what I learned and all the passages I had to study, and I mean, it was quite in-depth study we had to do. Mm. And, you know, you passed an exam. It wasn't a, it wasn't a minor thing. It was quite a lot of work. And this and is just for the regular kids going, going to Sunday. Sunday school, yes. Right. Yes. Wow. So in a way, that was a preparation for the time that Billy Graham came to New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And so many of us had that background of church and Sunday school and thousands and thousands of people in New Zealand and Australia too, I believe, came to Christ in their late teens and early 20s. Mm. And that was the time that Billy Graham came to New Zealand and held his crusades. Right. And again, because they weren't hearing the gospel in the churches, mm. people were, able, were so willing to respond to a crusade. Mm. So for people listening who might not be familiar with that, what the gospel actually means, so you're referring to the life, death and, and resurrection of Jesus? It's more more the aspect of, of having a personal relationship with Jesus. Okay. Yes. So mm -hmm. people weren't aware that you could have a personal relationship with him. It was more mm. um, mechanical kind of um, Bible readings and, mm -hmm. you know, Bible study maybe and all sorts of things, but I'd never heard about having a personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So the, this, the, these two men came to the town mm. and held a crusade for kids. Mm -hmm. They called it a happy hour, I think. <laughs> and they invited the school children to come after school for a week. Yeah. And they would... They would share the gospel and, and tell them about having a personal relationship and teach them some of the Bible stories that some of them would not have heard because mm. not everybody went to church, but a lot still did go then. Yeah. And uh, that was where I first heard about having a personal relationship with Jesus and really understood that I had to make a choice mm. about knowing him and yeah. being with him. So they came to the town and the first two days, uh, the, I, what I have to say is the Holy Spirit had hold of me. Mm. Now, I, I, can't, I can't give that any other explanation that I can find words for, okay. except it was like somebody was pulling at my heartstrings, mm. I suppose. Yeah. God was pulling at my heartstrings to get me to go to this meeting. Mm. I could feel this sense of being pulled to go to the meeting. Yeah. Um, and I've held, withheld 
because I thought, oh, this will just be kids' stuff for, for kids, for little kids, you know, and I was quite a grown-up 12-year-old. Mm. And anyway, on the Wednesday, I couldn't, I could no longer withstand that pull. Mm. It became so strong, I had to go. So I went on the Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and by the Friday, I reached the point where I realised I needed to make a decision about this Jesus, whether I wanted to believe in him and trust in him for the rest of my life, or whether I would just ignore him and Mm. take no more notice about him. Yeah. And so I made the decision that what I'd heard made lots of sense, that I did know the Bible pretty well, and I did know, you know, that the things were were true that had been written. I was aware that the things were, I suppose, because of all the Bible reading I'd had and so mm. on. Um, but it, it, was a, it was a battle for me. It was, you know, will I, won't I, will I, won't I? Mm. But I did give in in the end, and, and I had an absolutely tremendous conversion experience that held me has held me all the rest of my life. Wow. It was so strong and so convinced of the love of God Mm. and his love for me and his his willingness to live his life with me and through me and in me, Mm. if that makes sense. And did this overwhelming sense come to you prior to you saying yes after that battle in your head or did it come after? No, it came after. After. No, absolutely yeah. after. Okay. And when you were having that battle in your mind, what, what was sort of your pros and cons? What were you thinking? I either had to make a decision that this Jesus really was God mm-hmm. and if he was God, I had I, there was no option. Yeah. He was God and I needed to serve him and I needed to follow him. Mm. And I don't know what they had preached about that that week. I've got no idea. Mm. But they presented Christ as the Son of God in such a way that they had it had become a compelling issue. I either had to make a decision yeah. Yes or no. Yeah. And they'd made it really clear to me over those three days that I was there. Mm. Um, and I, when I look look at the life that the Lord caused us to lead after that, yeah. and all the scary stuff we've done, um, scary things we've tried, we've done, and places we've been, and experiences we've had I don't think we could have done them without having had an experience of conversion like that yeah because it's that that's made us feel so safe in God's care and in Mm. his hands I think it's really interesting that you say as well that you went through that battle in your mind you made that decision and then came that 
incredible experience. Yes. And what did that experience, I mean, you've described it a little bit, but what did that look like? Was that an emotional feeling or...? Oh, yes, I was very emotional. Mm. But it also made me want to go home and be a a much better daughter at home. Okay. Yes, I I remember the the Saturday after I, it must be the next day, um, I got out the vacuum cleaner and I climbed (laughs) under all the beds and vacuumed under the mattresses, you know, upside down under the mattresses. Wow. And, you know, cleaned the floors and got in the back corners. Just, I did something voluntarily, which I'd never have done before that. Yeah. And and just wanted to, to show my mother I couldn't. I didn't know how I was going to tell her, because in a way she didn't seem to really want to go to church. I'm not sure. I didn't know where she stood in, in the matters of things of God. I didn't, didn't, yeah. didn't know, and I wasn't. I didn't tell her straight away that I'd committed my life to Christ, mm. um, because our church didn't do that sort of thing. Mm. Luckily, I waited three days. Fortunately, but I. You know, I'd helped in the kitchen and I'd got up willingly to do dishes and things in the three days before I told her. Mm. So then it was on the basis of the change that I'd hoped she'd seen in me Mm. that I was going to tell her why I was behaving like I was. Mm. Wow, that's actions before the words. Yes, yes. That's cool, yeah. Yes, that's what I felt I needed to do. Yeah. Um, She would need to see that I'd changed before she'd believe anything. Uh-huh. Um, so, but it was interesting because I was helping her do the vegetables for dinner and we were standing at the sink together and I told her and she's, her reply was, well, that's just a lot of emotional nonsense and you'll get over it. Oh, okay. Not what you were hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> Not what I was hoping for at all. Yeah. And it quenched a lot of my willingness to to do things to um, mm. to show her that I'd changed. Okay, yeah. It was a bit sad, really, because I could have been a much nicer daughter yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if yeah. she'd just opened her heart to me, you know, yeah. to be more, more open than she was. But, mm-hmm. no, that was it. Just mm. a lot of emotional nonsense. You'll get over it. Mm-hmm. So here you, I am, yeah. <laughs> 58 years later. <laughs> she was wrong on that one. <laughs> oh, wow. And so at what age did you meet your husband, Graham? Oh, I was not quite 18 when I met him. Okay. So just finished school and had gone on to do the work yes. you were describing? Yes, yeah. yes. It was the following year. And um, we had, in Auckland, we used to have senior Bible class camps uh-huh. uh, once or twice a year. All the churches from around the city would send their senior Bible class people mm. to have a camp. And they were, that's, again, another place that the, that was a Methodist church, mm. that the Methodist church would teach or, you know, share about a personal relationship. Okay. So that... It, uh, it it was in a place where the older children could hear about the gospel mm. and, and there was that opportunity, but never, never in a church. Well, not 
not never in a church service. That church did hold a, uh, special meetings at, at one stage mm-hmm. where they had somebody who was a gospel preacher come and mm-hmm. share the gospel yeah. specifically mm-hmm. so that people might make a commitment to Christ. But it wasn't a regular part of a service like we would have. Right, yeah. In our services. Mm. So it was at these senior classes yes, that you yeah. and Graham met? Yes, the, the Bible class camp. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was from one side of Auckland and I was from another side completely, miles from each other. But uh, we just really clicked. Yeah. And the thing that made us click was both of us really had made a commitment to Christ mm-hmm. and we wanted to follow him. seriously Mm -hmm. and amongst the people we were with there weren't many of us okay who were like that yeah because the gospel wasn't preached all the time Mm -hmm. people weren't given this opportunity all the time Mm -hmm. so a lot of the kids just used to come because parents took them to took them to church Mm. they passed the exams (laughs) and they passed the exams and things like that (laughs) yes earlier on Mm. But it wasn't, and the churches used to hold dances mm-hmm. in those days, and a lot of the young people used to just go along to their church dances, and then perhaps they'd go to go go along to the Bible classes and so oh, on. Yeah, maybe they should bring a, back those church dances. <laughs> <laughs> More as a social club. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and did you start dating right away? Or were you friends? Now, the terminology in your generation to mine ah. is a little different. Yes. Um, I would have said we started dating straight away, but that means more to you than it does to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would I, I meant we started being friends together yeah. to start with. Yeah. Um, but we were very regular friends. You know, we were seeing a lot of each other. Mm-hmm. So... Um, we had to travel a lot to get to do that. But, yeah. Uh, but then when I told my parents about Graham, uh, mother mainly, uh, they didn't approve of him at all because he hadn't had a good education and he just worked as a person in a shop mm-hmm. and he was nowhere Nowhere near the class of person that they would want their daughter to be marrying. So okay, that was very very difficult. Yeah, because I could see it from a completely different perspective of our lives in Christ. Yeah, and I actually taught Graham to read properly when I met him because he had such a problem at school mm. with being dyslexic. Oh, okay. That. He he couldn't read. Yeah. And it didn't take me very long, and I got him reading properly. And I, the method that I had learned myself along the way was the one that he needed, which was great. Yeah. And he picked it up quite quickly and was able to read. He couldn't, still couldn't write proper English for the rest of his life, but and I've helped him out with that on occasions. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so when did you decide to get married? 
Oh, we decided to get married after about 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't, we didn't tell... Well, we told his parents because his parents were open to us. Yeah. But we didn't tell my parents till I was 20. And we can't get married in New Zealand. We couldn't get married in New Zealand until you were 21 in those days. Oh, really? So you had to wait till you were 21. So my mother wasn't going to marry me off to that thing, is what she said. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I would have to wait and marry myself off to him at 21. Yeah. So we just had to be really patient and pray for the grace of God to get us through that those that long period of time. Yeah. Which he did do. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And how can you tell us about your wedding day? Well, my wedding day wasn't overly special for me because it was so difficult because oh. Mum and Dad were there. Yes. But they didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. And because I didn't know where I stood with them, we couldn't really discuss what was going to happen on the day properly. Okay. And they lived in a different place from Auckland and they'd travelled down the night before, just the night before the wedding. And they hadn't sort of said, well, how's the day going? To, how, what's going to happen on the day? It, it, was, it was so awkward. Mm. Um. And then the men found that there was a, a big rugby match and they got a ra- found a radio. My father found oh. a radio in the car yeah. and brought it in and had it in the back corner of the room. So the men were up the back corner of the room where we were having the reception. It was an informal reception. Um, having, they had the radio up the back, listening to, listening to the radio um, during the wedding reception. Oh, dear. So for me, my wedding day doesn't hold the special thoughts and memories that maybe for many it would. Yes. But then, yeah, it's not about the day, is it? You've had this wonderful... it's the rest of your life. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Yes. Yes. I believe you two went on to start a Christian bookshop. Is that right? Um, we we did, but we didn't actually start it. We took over a, an old an old Christian bookshop. It was a very old building, and the books in it were old, and the couple that were running it were very old. Everything was old, <laughs> and they were praying for somebody to be sent by God to them, basically, yeah. to take over the Christian bookshop. Okay. So that's quite a story. Um, just before we get onto that story, we better just say that we were married for five years before this happened. Okay. Um, and we had two children by the time we... We had two, two, two little fellows. One was three and the other was nine months old when we, when we took on the Christian bookshop. And had your parents by that point become supportive of you as a as a new family? Not really. No. They did sort of because my husband's previous job to taking on the Christian bookshop was that he was the manager of a toy and nursery shop and he'd boosted the turnover of the shop by 50%. Okay. And then God intervened with what happened. The whole story has to be told. 
we had had a couple of girls boarding with us that lived in New Plymouth. Mm. And they came to live with us while they went through um, teacher training. Mm -hmm. So one of them had been living with us for two years and she was going to get married. So we were traveling down to New Plymouth for her wedding. Mm -hmm. Now, we'd heard about this Christian bookshop in their town. Now, there were some in Auckland, but where we lived in Auckland, the Christian bookshops were all miles away from where we were. And so we never had an opportunity to go into a Christian bookshop and get a book or, you know, encourage ourselves like that. Mm -hmm. But you can do that in, in New Plymouth. And we went down to New Plymouth on a couple of days before the wedding so that we could have a little bit of time and look around the Christian bookshop. Mm -hmm. And because we had become aware that with this job that Graham had, he was also expected to go along to uh, a businessman's group where they all drank. And he was always being pushed to drink. And he didn't and drink he alcohol. he didn't drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. And he was being pushed into things that he didn't like being pushed into mm -hmm. and having to meet with men. And he was expected to go to this, this meeting mm -hmm. as part of his work. And through it, because we had a lot more money that year, and it was only a year that he worked there and he'd got the business up so fast, it doubled its turnover in, in, in such a short time. That's yeah. right. And it had pulled us away from the Lord a bit and we'd, we'd, ah, okay. we'd become a bit better off. And so we were finding ourselves drifting a little bit from, from our, in our faith. Okay. So the Christian bookshop was that we were going to get a book and we were going to, you know, go and just stir ourselves up to follow the Lord again. Yeah. Because that was how we were feeling about our faith. It had got a bit sideways drifted at this point. So just sort of like emotionally or practically, it just wasn't a big part of your life anymore? Emotionally. Um, emotionally. Yeah, we were still going to church every Sunday. Yeah. But... Yeah, we didn't emotionally, we didn't have, we weren't where we should have been. Mm. I think we sensed that, I guess again it was the pull of the Holy Spirit yeah. that we were going off in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So the idea was to we'd get a Christian bookshop and we'd stir ourselves up again to, you know, to, be, to get more involved with the things of the Lord rather than the things of the world. Yeah. So we went into this Christian bookshop and, the elderly gentleman there talked to Graham for about three quarters of an hour nonstop. <laughs> there. Okay. And then I came in. I don't know what I, I was just looking around the back of the shop and I think Graham was talking to him and I was looking for books. Mm. Um, and it was really funny because Graham came out of there and he said, if I had that bookshop, I would do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And this. Mm. Walking, you know, he came out of the bookshop and he started, if I had that bookshop. Yeah. And I said, well, you haven't got the bookshop, so you can't do all that. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. 
Yeah. The next day we were at Jocelyn's wedding and lo mm. and behold, this couple were at her wedding again. Ah. And they took time to stop and talk to us. Mm-hmm. Why they stopped to talk to us, I don't know, except that God was in on this. Mm. And then the next day again, we were in a big public park. It's a huge, beautiful park in the middle of New Plymouth. Mm-hmm. And we met them again in the park. And we didn't just say, oh, hello again. Mm. They stopped and talked to us again. Yeah. And it was a connection again. It just, God was in this, obviously, because we went home and pretended we could forget about this Christian bookshop in New Plymouth. Mm. But neither of us could. Yeah. After about a week, I was saying to Graham, I can't get this jolly Christian bookshop out of my head. (laughs) I just feel we've got to do something about it. Mm. He says, yeah, that's exactly what I think. So we wrote a letter and we said that if in in the next five years, if they were interested in selling it, Mm. could they please contact us? Because we could be interested. Thinking, you know, we've only been here a year at the shop where he was. Okay. We wouldn't want to pull out after a year and go. Anyway, what happened was we got an email, which you probably don't know what an email is now, an email letter, which was a fast way of getting letters around the country. Okay. Um, came by by plane instead of snail mail. Ah. Uh. And it got an email letter back two days later saying, this is what we've been praying for. (laughs) So very fast things happened. We got information about the books sent up to us and we talked it over with our church leadership, which is an important part of making a decision like this that's a whole life, family and everything else upending. Yeah. Um, Graham's family were willing to let us go. Mm-hmm. My parents, well, you can imagine what they said. <laughs> um, Bit of a pattern there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but God moved in such a way when we went down. We we thought we we thought we'd test the Lord in in this. So we put the house on the market at a a reasonable price to get a cash offer for it. Mm-hmm. And if we got a, a reasonable price offered for our house and everything worked out down in New Plymouth, then we'd know that we were meant to do it. Mm-hmm. So guess what happened? We came back to find we had a sale on our house and the people who were in the shop bought a house for us to rent from them and oh. they so that they would keep the price of the rental down mm. where we could manage it for for, for you know well because you didn't make a lot of money running a christian bookshop no so they were quite happy to you know just get a reasonable rental for it and so they bought they bought the shop they said they'd buy the shop if we took the christian you know they'd buy the house if we took the shop. Yeah. So we got home to find that, well, we've got a sale for your house. So here we are. 
Mm. We'd already talked to the church about it. They'd said if, if God makes opens the door, then you we think you should you go through it. So mm, it's pretty open. <laughs> it was pretty open, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what happened was we we moved the shop from the old shop. It's at least was running out in the old shop, mm-hmm. in the old building, and. We moved it across the road to a sunny side of the shop, sunny mm-hmm. side of the street, where people walked up and down. They didn't walk down the cold side of the street in New Plymouth. They walked on the warm side because it's a cold wind coming off the mountain there. Oh, wow. So you don't walk down that side of the street in mm. the wintertime. Yeah. And we we moved the shop across the road and we had a, a big sale of all the old books that were basically out of date. We lost a lot of money doing it. Mm. We probably should have been a bit harder, but because of all the circumstances of them making, you know, renting the house out and so on, we didn't do all the hard worldly things that we might have done. Yeah, okay. (laughs) So maybe some people said we were stupid, but anyway. Mm. Um, It's hard hard to make those calls, isn't it? Oh, it it is very hard to make those calls. Yeah. Um, But what happened was the first year we got filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. um, In about March, I think, of that year, maybe May at May, somewhere early in the year anyway. And we'd never really heard about the baptism of the Holy Spirit up till then. Yeah. So we got filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Graham started to buy books about the Holy Spirit. Mm. And then all the people who were starting to get filled with the Holy Spirit in New Plymouth came out of the woodwork and started buying the books. And they were buying them to give them away to people so they would find faith and get filled with the Spirit too. Mm. And it was it was just happening like they were coming out of the woodwork, taking the books, and then the next lot of book people <laughs> came. And there was a huge move of God that happened. Thousands of people got saved. First of all, I think the, the people that got saved to begin with were people from the denominational churches, including the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And then... We got a whole lot of surfies who got saved, and there was a, hundreds of them got saved. Wow. A lot from Australia mm-hmm. came to New Plymouth, and the surfies found the surfies and brought them to church. And, yeah. Uh, and for anyone listening who's not familiar with the term saved, yes. you're meaning they found Jesus as yes. their eternal saviour? Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and when have a you... personal experience of his love for them. Mm. Yeah, and you spoke also about a filling or a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Can you briefly explain for people what that is, or even what it looked like for you? I had an experience of what I call being saved. Which for me personally, I think actually did include getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, only because I didn't know about that at the time. When you were 12. When I was 12, yeah. I didn't 
I didn't follow through with that because I didn't know about it. But looking back, mm. I believe God really filled me with the Holy Spirit at that time as well. Yeah. Um, some people have experience of both at the same time. Mm. Um, others come in a more gradual way of coming to know Jesus on a personal level first and then committing their lives to him in a deeper way where they where they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they're willing to let the Holy Spirit take control of their lives mm-hmm. is probably the easiest way to explain it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, so not take control in the sense that you are a robot, but, no, but not dri- like that. But perhaps be the be the driver with that. Yes. Be, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You get it behind the driving wheel, not you. Yes. You're the passenger, and well, not quite the passenger. Mm. But it's tricky to explain, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> um, mm. You still are always given given the right to say no. Yes. God never never makes us do anything. He always gives us the right to say no. Mm. But that drive and that desire is, yes. is there from the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yes. And like like Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and things happened through him. People's mm. lives got changed because he he met them and, mm. and he was kind to them and he treated them with respect and Mm. All sorts of things like that. Yeah. That's how being filled with the Holy Spirit should hopefully make us behave like Jesus did. Yeah. And so this was happening a lot around the time that you took on this bookshop. Yes. So, if okay. We, if we hadn't gone when we did, mm. I rather think that that move of God would have not happened as it did and as when it did. Wow. The, the, it, there would have been a thwarting if that bookshop had remained a dead old bookshop mm. and the people hadn't been willing to buy the new and exciting books that were coming on the shelves. Because mm. it all happened within a couple of years. It was just amazing what happened. Wow. And all the teaching about... Um, being thankful to God and speaking, you know, what you believe, what you what you speak is really important because if you are neg- say negative things, you'll get negative results. Mm. You, you need to speak God's word out, mm-hmm. and it's, that will change your circumstances and so on. Yeah, things like that that was coming out of the book teachers in the teaching that was in the books that was coming out of yeah. on the shelves and the, the new first um, translation of the New Living Bible mm-hmm. came out about 1973. So this move of God had been happening since 1971 in New Plymouth. So it was about the end of two Maybe may have been even earlier than that. Might have been halfway through '72. Was Chris and Eric Harrison were there at the time, mm-hmm. and 
I remember that they were involved in the ones that got these new Bibles, great big thick paperbacks that were only $2.90, I think. It's <laughs> a pretty good deal. <laughs> <laughs> they got well-worn and screwed up and mm. <laughs> looked wow. at and used by all the young people that came through New Plymouth at that time. Mm. It came to New Plymouth and through New Plymouth. Mm. It was a, a, a movement of people who came, experienced God in a fresh way, and then went back to where they'd come from. Mm. Or they came and they stayed. Okay, yeah. Uh, or they lived there in the first place. But. And is there a specific story or memory or perhaps person you met from that period of the Christian bookshop that you'd like to share? Well, Chris and Eric Harrison, I'd have to say, were the the two people that I remember who are still like us, still going on and working in the kingdom. Mm. Now he's a pastor of a church and he has he's planted three other three or four other churches. Mm. Up in up in the Queensland area, up in up in Queensland, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, there's a lot of old. Um, I was going to say a lot of older people, but a lot of the older people have been dead by now. But there's a lot of people our age and younger mm. um, who who are still in ministry, who who were part of that, mm. who were part of that at the time. Very encouraging. But, yes, it is. And Margaret and Robin Aim are another couple who have been in ministry in, in Kenya for over 30 years now. Wow. They've worked there all those years. Yeah. Wonderful. So you spoke about you had two kids when you started the bookshop. Yes. And you Ruth, had another. Ruth is that was one? born in New Plymouth. Right. So you had Ruth as well. Can you talk a bit about becoming a mum and being a parent? Yes, for me that again was difficult because my experience with my mother had been so difficult. Yeah. Um, I found that I got very angry with my children, which surprised me. Okay. I hadn't had anything particularly that I got angry about Mm-hmm. Um, until I had my children and suddenly I found all this anger coming out. Um, yeah, right. And I, I really had to seek God's help to overcome that and to, to deal with it because mm. it, it was, it was ter- it was horrible. Yeah. Um, and I was expected too much of my children and I didn't understand that what I'd experienced was what I was dishing out again. Mm-hmm. Now I do, of course. Yeah. And I, I understand now why my mother behaved the way she did to me. Yeah. Um, particularly was to me more than to my other two sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, but her mother had a terrible time. She... She'd had three miscarriages before she had a baby that lived. Mm. And this was back in, would have been in before 1910. Mm. And I think having a child who lived 
in the circumstances my mother did live, mm. her, her mother was sent home from the nursing home and told, go home, your baby's going to die. Two weeks later, they rang her up and told her, the baby's still alive, you can come and get her. Oh, my goodness. Imagine the bonding problem. So they kept the baby yep. saying that it would die. It would die, like the three previous ones had. Wow. And she was a girl, not a boy, and she lived. Mm-hmm. And the others were boys. The others were all boys. Okay. Wow, that's horrific. You imagine the damage in her heart? Yeah. So here she had a baby that she couldn't bond with. Mm. There would have been no bonding. They didn't yeah. do much in the way of that anyway in those days. If it happened, it happened. If it didn't, it didn't. Mm-hmm. Nobody understood about all that psychological stuff mm-hmm. back in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And so when my mother turned up in 1911, uh, and I, then I think what happened was because of what happened to her, it happened to me, mm-hmm. then it happened to me with my children again. Um, and fortunately, I've broken, I didn't have a girl to break the pattern with, but I I had broken the pattern if Ruth had had children. Um, she hasn't been able to have children, but if she'd been able to have children, hopefully I would have broken that pattern yeah. for her. Yes. Uh, because I, I did deal with all the anger mm. and then, that asked the Lord to really teach me how to... Basically, I was afraid of trying to be... I was afraid of being a mother. I was afraid that I wouldn't be a good mother. Mm. That was the basis of the fear and the anger. Mm. And you just took that to the Lord in prayer? Yeah, I had to keep doing Mm. it and had to work hard at it and keep asking him to, you know... To take away the anger and replace it with love, but slowly we won the battle. Great, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, and so I understand that you also travelled and did ministry overseas. We did. Mm, when did that all come about? When the kids were all grown up and they'd mm-hmm. all left home, basically. Mm-hmm. Except we still had Ruth with us at the time we went to Kenya. Um, And we went to Kenya believing that we were meant to go there and behave amongst the people like Jesus would. Mm. Missionaries have gone to Kenya over the years and gone and lived in big flash houses, Mm. had big flash cars, and lived above the people. Yeah, okay. And that's been the constant thing that the Kenyan people have seen. Mm. And we believe we were meant to live amongst them, like at about the level of a school teacher. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. We didn't take any furniture. We took a, a pots and pans and plates and cutlery and stuff, which you couldn't really take now. But I suppose you could pack it in the hold of the plane, but we took it in our hand luggage so it wouldn't get broken mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and because it was heavy. In those mm-hmm. days, they didn't weigh your, your, your cabin luggage. They only took it by size so we could take all that heavy stuff in our cabin. Yeah. And what made you decide to pack up and go to Kenya? 
When we moved to Hamilton, now, how did we get to go to move to Hamilton via Wakatani and a whole lot of miserable experiences? Oh, yeah. So you asked me a question in here about, has there ever been a time when you've considered walking away from the Lord or when you've seriously questioned what you believe to be true? Yes, definitely. Okay, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I was wondering about that. So that has happened, yeah? Yes, it's happened. Um, and it came through, a lot of it, through other people judging our decisions of what we were to do with our lives mm-hmm. and telling us that and people in ministry who had got into high positions in a very short length of time, mm-hmm. but they hadn't walked with the Lord for the years and years that we had. Yeah, They'd got saved and got into a position of ministry in about five years mm-hmm. um, and thought they knew everything and they judged us for the things that we'd done and they didn't have all the information. Mm-hmm. They just sort of thought, oh, look, 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 looked at it like that and... Mm said that the Davies were, you know, stupid, like I said earlier on. And some people said we were stupid taking on the Christian bookshop and yeah, um, doing the things we did. But we we went to Bible, Bible college. We went through a flood. A literal flood. A literal flood. Okay, wow. A literal flood. It went right through the house. It came... <laughs> It was a stream that came down the hill, brought all the mud and rocks and trees with it, Mm. went through the house, left most of it in the house, along with a lot of other houses in the area. Mm. And the house was, we were only renting that house. But God is so clever, he works everything out for good. Because the flood was called a national disaster, people could get 3% loans again. Okay. To buy a house yeah. from the government. Yeah. So we went back to New Plymouth, and after a little while, I believe we were supposed to be looking for a house. So we went out to the town of, New, out to the town of Whitera, which is just out of New Plymouth a little way. Mm-hmm. And there was also a need for a pastor in that church at the time. Mm-hmm. So although we weren't so that so particular that we were meant, we weren't so sure that we weren't to be pastoring a church, but the pastor was telling us, well, if you don't want to pastor the church, I've got nothing else that I, you can do. <laughs> and he didn't really want us in his church. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice welcome. <laughs> mm. <laughs> we went out to look at this little town and we we went to the church and, and we gradually became convinced that we were meant to pastor it. And the Lord told Graham that if he'd, if he'd go out to the town... There'd be a door open for a home for for us. Okay. So it turned into a literal one, a door open. <laughs> he eventually found the land agent that was selling homes, 
um, in a funny place above a women's wear shop. Mm-hmm. And he took him to a a house that had its doors and windows wide open because the man was actually working next door, but he was having to let all the concrete dry out. Mm-hmm. And so it was <laughs> a wide open door. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and within the price range that we could get um, a, a home of our own again. Mm. So here was God replacing the home that we'd given up in New Plymouth mm. and giving us a home of our own again. Yeah. So another place where he's so faithful mm. to his word that he doesn't he doesn't ask you for anything. He doesn't ask you to do anything and he won't take care of you. Yeah. Uh, so we expected to have to rent for the rest of our lives, but at that stage of our lives, again, we were able to own a home and for the next good many years to come. Beautiful. So uh, that was lovely. So we were there for five years and then we moved through a lot of circumstances to a place called Fokatani. Mm-hmm. And life was very difficult in Fokatani for us because we were not meant to be there, we think. Okay. We were meant to go to Hamilton. Yeah. Because the Lord said, you've compassed this, encompassed this mountain long enough. There's a scripture in the Old Testament about this. You've encompassed this mountain long enough to turn northward. Okay. Northward from New Plymouth, from Taranaki, was Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Northeastward was where we went. Okay. Now, we looked at Hamilton and we didn't like the main church leader there. We didn't trust. Okay. And we didn't like him. Mm-hmm. We were proven right, but we didn't know at the time what was going on. He okay. was having affairs with half the women in his church. Oh, dear. It was all came to the light later on, but... Yeah. In our, we knew in our spirits mm. that something was wrong yeah, and we couldn't be part of it. So we went off to this other town instead, but it was very difficult. Life was awful there mm. in many ways. Wow, that's all very complicated, isn't it? It's all very complicated. The issues are complex, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Anyway, after four years... The door opened for us to go to Hamilton. Okay. And we still went. That man was still in charge of that church, but by that time we'd realised there are other varieties of churches around. Yeah. Not just AOG, mm-hmm. which is what we'd become indoctrinated with at that point of time. Yeah. So we went to Hamilton and in, in the end got involved in the Apostolic Church in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. But before we went to that church, we met a couple who became part of our lives in a very real way, and we part of their lives. And they were the ones who encouraged us to... Graham has a prophetic gift. He can know something about a person without knowing them. Mm. And has often blessed people very much with that gift. Yeah. Um, 
and Janice and Stuart had seen it in operation and they wanted him to you know encourage he, they wanted to encourage him to use that gift and the apostolic church were open to to that sort of gift being used in their church okay they were part of how we got to africa and if they 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 supported us in a major way financially mm. so that we could go and, and do the work that we did there for the four and a half years mm-hmm. and the main things that we did differently over there from other missionaries was that we went out into the rural areas, out into the bush carrying packs on our backs. In Kenya. In Kenya, mm. in the heat. And we'd go on the public transport. We didn't use our, our own vehicle. Mm. We, you know, the scary, scary little vehicles and all the pack the people on and have accidents and so on oh gosh like they do in third world countries yeah um but the lord protected us all that time we were there and i believe that if you're doing what god wants you to do he will protect you if he doesn't then he has a very good reason for taking you home one or the other okay but we've always felt safe well no, we didn't always feel safe, <laughs> but we always knew we were safe. Okay, yeah. Even though sometimes the vehicles were driving a bit helter-skelter or whatever. <laughs> um, but the thing that most that we did was that we just were living with the people. We'd go and stay on their on their properties, mm. sleep in their beds, which they would usually vacate for us. Oh, how kind. How kind, yes. But they'd have a little hut with a couple of beds in it and the rest of them, people would be sleeping on the floor. And that's what they would do. But they never expected us to sleep on the floor. And that was that was one thing beyond what I was capable of doing. I couldn't have slept on the floor. But we could go out there and sleep in their beds out there in their places, and they were happy about it, more than happy to do that for us. And we we worked with them, and we found out what they understood from the scriptures, and they had often had very little Bible teaching. Did they speak English, or did you speak their language? A lot of them spoke English. If they were pastors, a lot of them spoke English. Or if they didn't speak English, they would have somebody like a school teacher or an agricultural worker, all with degrees in English. Wow. um, Who would be out there and would be able to translate for us. Mm. So everywhere we went, even in the remotest area, there was always one of those well-educated people available, sometimes a woman too. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, available to to translate for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to um, a meeting that was, they just asked the people to gather on this farm, or I suppose it was a church on the farm, in the back blocks of nowhere. We went over fields in a truck <laughs> mm. in a little in a little little truck um, 
yeah, there was a church building there, church hall sort of building. And I don't know, there would have been 70 or 80 people had gathered. And they'd gathered them all from all around the district and they'd all come for the weekend. And we we used to have to put in some money to feed them. Mm-hmm. We'd have to pay. That was our contribution was always that we would have to provide some money for their food because otherwise they just couldn't provide that extra money for for food for, for all those people to gather. Mm. But they would make the effort of paying their fares and everything to get there. We'd spend the weekend teaching them. And then we'd have probably five or six meetings in that weekend. And I'd never been to one where I'd had to do the whole lot before. I'd always had one where I'd had Graham with me. But I had a an interpreter working with me and he said, they called me Sister Helen. Sister Helen, I'd like a copy of all the notes in your notebook so that I can preach better. Oh. That really encouraged me because later yeah. we moved to a different area of Kenya and I spent a lot of my time putting messages together going through passages of scripture, putting messages together in English on one side of the page and Swahili on the other, Mm. which Swahili can be typed with an English typewriter. Okay. Um, And I'd send 120 or 200, was it 120 copies? I think it was what I used to send 120 copies up into the bush and they would be distributed so that everybody could have those notes to learn how to use the scriptures Mm. and how to put passages from the New Testament and the Old Testament together Mm. because they didn't have that sort of information. They didn't even have a concordance, most of them. Mm. Um, They'd have to only go by what they knew off by heart. and Mm. It's just wonderful. But that's what I did for the when we went down to the coast. I spent a lot of my time doing that to send out all that teaching to 120 at a time. Wow, how great. Yes, and when we were leaving, we had a, I had, it was again, it was me that had this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we We used to eat at places that a lot of Europeans wouldn't eat at. Okay. They were perfectly clean and the food was perfectly decently well cooked. Mm. So that you you weren't going to come to any harm. It was sort of vegetables and beans and things like that, things that were quite safe to eat. I was walking across to this little shop where I could get a meal for lunchtime. And there was a voice calling out, Sister Helen, Sister Helen. I was thinking, who's this? Mm. I don't know who this is. Oh, well, I'm here in a rather public place. Um, people can see me. I mean, there weren't many people around, but there was this one man calling me. I said, I don't know who he is. Anyway, I thought, okay, it seems safe enough, Lord. So I will wait and talk to him. So mm-hmm. he said, oh, sorry, you don't know me. He said, started with that. You don't know me, but I know who you are. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, I work with the um, oh, mission in Mombasa. I should remember its name. But it's a mission in Mombasa. Mm-hmm. And he said, I've heard so many stories as I've been around the churches preaching about how you and your husband have behaved like Jesus amongst them. Oh, wow. And that was your heart all that along. Was, and you know what? Once I'd heard that, mm. it was a short time and the Lord told us we were to leave. Okay. The job was done. The job was done. For you anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for us. Wow. Yes. And where to from there? Where to from there? <coughs> I went to Israel from there. Oh, for, really? For a, just, just for six weeks, basically a six weeks holiday, really. It was mm-hmm. wonderful being able to sort of walk where Jesus had walked and the scriptures came alive. Um, things things just really came alive when you saw the places. You, you, Israel's on, I mean, Jerusalem's on the top of a hill and you go down to Jericho and you go up from Jericho <laughs> the Bible specifically says things like that. It says, yeah. come on up the hill to, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord and so on. Mm. Um, some of those phrases and the scriptures would come alive as we were going through a place or going through the eye of a needle or something like that. Wow. <laughs> so that was that was exciting. Yeah. Yeah, that was really exciting. Excellent. And then were you back to New Zealand after your trip? Yes, we went back to New Zealand. Um, we had about five months in India later, and we spent six weeks or approximately in Sri Lanka and in Singapore and somewhere else. Oh, Oman. Right. In the Middle East. Wow, there there must be many, many stories. Yes. From those. Is there any one in particular that you would like to share with us? The time in Oman was especially wonderful. Um, You're in a country that's Muslim, Mm. but because of the British heritage, the British are are allowed to be churches there. Okay. Okay. And they've got a compound where all the churches have got buildings crammed together on this piece of land. Mm. Every kind of denomination and variety of church all jammed together on this one piece of land. Mm -hmm. And then people meet in houses outside that. And we would be going in the evenings most of the time from one house to another, Mm. holding Bible studies and praying for people. And it happened, we were there just shortly after we'd experienced the move of God that happened just be, just at the end of the 1990s. No, hang on, 1994, 1993, 94. When people were being filled with the Holy Spirit in a, in a fresh way, there, there were people who were being touched by the Holy Spirit and they were just made like statues. Um, All sorts of interesting things things were happening. 
Mm. But out of it, people's lives were being changed, Mm. which if they weren't, I would have questioned the whole thing. Yeah. It would have seemed very weird unless the lives were being changed. But people's lives were being changed. Mm. And we experienced that in New New Zealand before we went over there. And we would be praying for people and they were just experiencing God in a fresh way. Mm. So you came to Australia? Yes. Because all the kids had come here to work. Oh, really? Okay. It was really hard to get work in New Zealand. Okay. And both the boys had joinery exper- um, certificates, mm-hmm. but they couldn't get decent work in New Zealand. Mm. So they both came over here, and then Ruth followed them, and then we thought, well, we better come because there'll be grandchildren over here. Yeah. So uh, that's what brought us to, to Australia. Beautiful. Yes. And after being married for so many years and being parents and then grandparents, do you have any reflections on marriage that you would like to share with us? I think the most important thing about getting married is that two people have the same sense of purpose, whether it's in God or in the world, they need to have a similar purpose in their hearts to live for. If they're too different, they, they've got two different directions and they pull apart. There needs to be a, a sort of a central purpose for both their lives. Over your life, is there anything that stands out for you as something, perhaps a regret or something you would have done differently? I mean, you you did mention that move to the northeast yes. in New Zealand. Was Would that be it or was there something else? Well, the, out of that came something good. So mm. actually because there were people in, in the church in, in Wakatani who led us to the church where our friends in New Plymouth were from. Mm. And we would never have met them if it hadn't been for that mistake that we seem to have made from going to Wakatani. Yeah. So God always works things together for good. Yeah. Yeah. We can make mistakes, but he works things together for good mm. and tidies them all up. And what would you say is your proudest achievement? I didn't like the word proud in a way, but that's all right. I've changed it slightly. Okay. Um, we've had to do things that others didn't agree with. Yeah. I'm so glad, glad, so glad God gave me a strong conversion experience of his love so that I could always be sure he loved me and he would work everything together for good. Mm. It's the fact that we didn't give up, I think. We could have so easily given up so many times. Yeah. I haven't shared quite a few of the worst experiences. Um, just where people's judgment, and, and it doesn't happen now so badly because the church have been through that and have learnt that they mustn't do that mm. generally, I think. Yeah. And when I say the church, I'm talking about the whole church. Sure. 
yeah. the, the worldwide church. I I think the church has begun to believe, you know, understand that judging what people might do without getting all the facts is dangerous and damaging people. And a lot of damage was done by those inexperienced pastors. But we needed pastors and we only had inexperienced ones, so... Mm, it's tricky. <laughs> tricky, that's right. Mm. And so, Helen, you've been unwell now with cancer for a couple of years. I think a lot of people struggle with the concept of, well, if God is real and God is good, then why do good things... Sorry, mm. why do bad things happen to good people? Are you able to talk a bit about your experience of that and your perspective on that? Yes, yes. Um, the Apostle Paul said he was happy to happy to go and be with the Lord, but he he needed to be still here with because the people needed him. Yeah. Um, and I've put it this way that my my life is in God's hands, and I have His peace whether I live or die. For me, I don't mind. I've had my 70 years. Somewhere in the Bible it says that the Lord would give us 60 plus 10. can't remember the scripture properly. Um, 70 years and then then with the rest with pain. (laughs) I've had more of my share with pain before I got to 70, I reckon, Mm -hmm. because I've had both hips giving me terrible trouble. Mm -hmm. And... um, I, for the sake of others, they're happy to have me still here. Um, yeah. And so long as the Lord gives me the grace and enough pain relief, I can, I can cope with that. It's actually not the cancer that's giving me the pain. It's the, um, it's the hip, it's my hip that gives me all the pain. Right. But I have had to have. Um, chemotherapy for the cancer and that's made life uh, done a lot of damage to my body in the process of keeping me clear of cancer so that's rather tricky at times because you've got all these other problems with your body that uh, Mm. some of them take well one of them seems to be taking about a year to to overcome the skin problem that developed. So mm. on one, when I was on one lot of cancer, chemo, chemotherapy. So, And how does your faith kind of, how do you cope in your faith? Does it waver through this pain? Has it wavered at all through the pain? Um, no, I've, I go back to my conversion. God is God. God is in charge of my life. He's real. He loves me. He knows what's best for for me and the people around me, not me in isolation from the people around me. Yeah. And we often look at ourselves as an isolation mm. and not in in the circumference of those who are around us who also need us. Yeah. But... The passage of scripture that has been a particular key for us is Matthew 6.33, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these other things will be added to us that we need. Yeah. We, we say that God has been totally faithful in providing all our needs. We've been willing to do what he's asked us to. Mm. And at the end of our lives, we are living in a Wesley Mission village where we can afford to live in Sydney. It's marvellous that this is available for us. Yeah. But I, I wrote this down. Faith equals risk. Risk is scary, but when you get past the scary, what an adventure you can have. Beautiful. Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.